Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Jamf Now, the number one device management solution for all your company's Apple devices. To learn more about how Jamf Now can help you secure your Macs, iPads, or iPhones, head to jamf.com slash mission daily to set up your first three devices for free. That's jamf.com slash mission daily or click on the link in the show notes. On this episode of the Mission Daily, Chad sat down with entrepreneur and author of The Soul of a Deal, Richard Wolpert. Richard shares with us some of his advice for young entrepreneurs, the tactics to execute a successful exit, and what he learned from director J.J. Abrams. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to the Mission Daily. And in this episode, we have a special guest. I first saw Richard and discovered his work when I got an invite to go to a Silicon Valley bank dinner slash private event with Reed Hoffman. And I didn't know who Richard was, but in the event invitation, I discovered he would be interviewing Reed. And I showed up, I discovered that Richard had not only written a marvelous book called The Soul of a Deal, but that he was an accomplished technologist and so much more. After I heard the interview, I had to get him on the podcast. And so here he is. Richard, welcome. Thank you, Chad. So Richard, how long did this book writing process take you and how long has this been kind of germinating in your mind? Yeah, it, it took a lot longer than I thought it would. It took about, I would say, from the first day that I started writing to when the book was done, which was like six months ago before it was out, but done, it took about three years. And it took that long, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, about a third of the book are chapters about deals that I did. And then two thirds of the book are interviews with people from various different industries about deals they did. Everybody from J.J. Abrams, as you mentioned, Reed Hoffman, Deepak Chopra, Peter Guber, Penn from Penn and Teller, a retired lieutenant colonel from the Army, etc. So it wasn't as simple as just I needed the time to sit down and write myself, but I also had to schedule 22 interviews all over the country, go and do those interviews, they were all audio recorded, and then obviously had to convert what was an interesting conversation into a book chapter. And then many of these people are very well known, so they have legal teams and teams that represent their, you know, their public persona. And I had to get releases, and I had to get the chapters approved, and everything else. So it was a three-year process, but a lot of that was because of all the people I interviewed, who were great and gracious and gave of their time, both not just the interview, but feedback afterwards. And it definitely shows in the book, the preparation and everything that went into it. I'd like to jump into four of my favorite deals from the book and maybe have you break those down for the audience. The book is really cool because it presents a deal and then it follows with some of the key points and takeaways, kind of like lessons learned from each deal. So let's jump into the first one that you mentioned, J.J. Abrams. So when JJ yeah. was back as a writer, he wasn't exactly well-known. He had some smaller hits under his belt and he had this big idea that he was working on that would become lost. He was writing it and right. he had a chance Correct. to basically be hired and do a deal with Steven Spielberg and Tom Cruise for a movie they were working on. So I won't disclose any more, but I would love for you to share a little bit about that deal. And I think this is one of the most fascinating ones in the book, but yeah, I'll let you take the floor here. Yeah, so the book, 
the book is actually divided into nine sections as well. So there's topics like when to say no, or sometimes no means not now, or understanding yourself or understanding the personalities on the other side. So this one obviously falls into the category of, you know, when to say no. And, and JJ was doing quite well, even at the time that this opportunity came to him from uh, Steven Spielberg and Tom Cruise. And, you know, growing up, JJ grew up here in LA and Steven Spielberg was his idol. And then here he had this opportunity to go and direct a movie. I believe it was War of the Worlds at the time. They were asking him to come and work on. And he was right in the middle of getting lost off the ground. And it was just a huge, huge passion project for him. He really believed in it. Really something he wanted to do. And uh, after much deliberation with his wife and just sort of thinking through things, he decided it just he couldn't do it. And he ended up saying no to Stephen at the time. And he explained why. And, you know, Stephen Spielberg's also got a good reputation of being a good guy. So he didn't, he wasn't like upset. He just accepted the reason. And um, long story short, you know, just a few years later, they did end up working together on a project, which is similar to one of my experiences, which was saying no to Steve Jobs, when I was uh, first at Disney in the mid-90s, he was still the CEO of Next, and he was trying to get me as a senior exec overseeing all of IT at the Walt Disney Company to get Disney to standardize on the Next computer, which I just thought was a wow. huge mistake. And it would have been a huge mistake had we done it. But, you know, Steve Jobs flew me up to Next and did a, did a big dog and pony show for us. And tried to convince me and asked me for support and I had to say no. And it was just super, super hard, but it was the right thing to do. So the the lesson there is twofold, I think. One is sometimes no is the right answer. You, you don't say yes to every deal. And and the second part of that is no doesn't necessarily mean never again. No sometimes, especially done if with respect and explanation and understanding can still lead to doing something in the future. Like a year after I told Steve no on what he wanted us to do, they were about to release for the first time the IMAX. If you guys remember the very first IMAX with the five color different IMAX that came out, I reached back out to Steve and said, hey, you know, I know you guys are releasing these Max right around the same time we're releasing this kid subscription service for Disney called Disney Daily Blast. And if you help me with some engineering resources, we'll launch the Mac and the Windows version on the same day so that there's no disadvantage to Mac users who want to get access to Disney products. And he bit it right at the uh, opportunity. He helped us a lot with prototype iMacs and some engineering resources. And I, a month later, I found myself doing a keynote with Steve Jobs in New York. So Again, no sometimes is the right thing and no sometimes still leads to something in the future. And Richard, I just want to jump into a little bit about Disney Daily Blast. You don't have to go into it too much, but it sounded like a precursor to Disney's streaming services, or maybe they were testing the waters. And for everyone to just share a little context, this is back when most people had, what, 28K modems? And so this was uh, one more example of where Disney is, they're just like any big company, trying and pioneering many different things. So yeah, what, what were your thoughts at the time and what were your thoughts about where streaming was going to head? Yeah, so you're exactly right in terms of where the technology was, right? So 
the the most common modem at the time were 28.8. Some people had the 56K modems, but essentially nobody had broadband. Flash had just taken off because Flash was able to do animated graphics using mathematical calculations. So you weren't truly streaming a, like when we did a uh, animated storybook in Flash, you're not really streaming the video across that small modem line. You're actually streaming the math that creates the huh. video. And then and then what Flash does, it takes that math and it recreates the video in real time on the user's computer. So it, it was pretty ahead of its time. Flash was actually started by a startup company called Future Splash out of San Diego. And it just been purchased by a company called Macromedia when we started working with them years later, Macromedia got bought by Adobe, you know, as things happen. But for us, it was, you know, I look back at what we were doing. Disney's Daily Blast was a, a monthly kid subscription service. It was, I believe, $5.99. It was in 1997, give or take six months, maybe. And we had everything from uh, animated, you know, joke of the day to one game a week to an animated storybook every week. So we tried to keep enough content coming on a weekly basis that it was fresh and new. And it was aimed at the audience that was getting more and more interested in doing media over the internet. But as you said, back when it was very uh, limited in terms of the types of things you could do, you know, the average internet connection today is probably, you know, 100 to 1,000 times faster than right. a 28K modem was. You know, that was back when downloading a song took like 10 to 15 minutes. That's, um, yeah, that's really cool. And that was an ambitious yeah. project, to say the least. I, I love it. The next story that really stood out for me as a veteran, I was in Iraq from 2007 to 2008, and you feature Colonel John, John Teen in here. And I think yeah. that was, yeah, it was, it was great for me to see this. And it's fun to have the business world and Silicon Valley recognize that, yes, deals get done in the military. They look pretty different. Yeah, that was really cool to see. Would you mind sharing a little bit about the Colonel's story in here? You bet. And it's included in there, as are some others, exactly for that reason. Like, I'm a tech guy, and I could have written a tech-only book. I just didn't think that would be as interesting as if sure. I could take tech and entertainment and politics and international finance and other categories and add them too. John, who I have just the utmost respect for, I've known him for about 25 years, 30-year veteran of the Army, did several tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. But prior to going over to the most recent round that we had just several years ago, there was a lot of preparation done for John and the troops prior to going to Iraq. They actually built a mock city of the areas in Iraq that they were going to be going to so that once they got there, they were actually familiar with the topology and the geography and how things were organized and what buildings were what. They also, of course, armed John with all of the best, you know, James Bond uh, <laughs> army gear that they possibly could. I mean, you know, chest cameras and helmets and that, you know, vests and guns and just everything possible. And, you know, he felt like his primary job there was to a convince the leaders, the political leaders of Iraq, that America was truly there to help them take their country back, get them on their feet and get out of the way. 
and then help them actually make progress on that. And when he went no over, easy task, he, to say the least. no easy task. Yeah. No easy task. And when he went over and he first started having meetings with the effectively who are the mayors of the different provinces in Iraq, he just, he felt he wasn't connecting with them at all. And he made this pretty bold move where he was like, you know what? It just hit him one day. Here I am. I'm walking into this guy's office who's sitting there in a suit. And here I am with guns and helmet and, you know, as he described it, Terminator gear fully to the gills. And it just created a sense of defense from the other side. And he literally threw out a lot of the training that they did in Germany and says, you know what, I'm going to take all this stuff off and I'm going to go meet with these guys wearing the same clothes that they're wearing. And I think in doing that, I might get them to drop their guard. And if they drop their guard, I can start to make progress. So he ended up doing that. He was never put in harm's way in doing so, which was a huge risk he took. And he ended up making a tremendous amount of progress and was cited by the government for his specific contributions to what we were able to achieve over in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, you know, not what you would think of as a traditional, quote, deal, but he needed to figure out how to deal with those political control organizations and bodies in Iraq. And that was the way he was able to do it. Yeah, I love that. And you kind of wrap it up here in the book where you note as the key points of the deal, the first one just being sometimes it takes weeks and months and you might literally have to eat the same food, drink the same drinks to get to know the person, you know, walk a mile in their shoes. So yeah, that's just such a good lesson. One of the other stories that stood out to me was Michelle Peluso. I think I'm saying her last name, but Michelle's story was fascinating. So she is the first CMO of IBM right now, but earlier in her career, she was running, a, I think, a, a website and media company called Site59. And you tell a story about how she facilitated a successful exit. Would you mind sharing a little about that? Yeah, well, the, the Site59 journey for Michelle was amazing on a couple levels. So she actually started the company from scratch. It was a travel site. It helped people with hotels and flights. She was doing pretty well. She was approached to sell the company. She was literally days away from selling the company on September 11th, 2001. And she was in New York and she was walking down the street and she saw the, the planes hit the towers. And, Jeez. you know, as horrible as that was, obviously, you know, the worst terrorist attack in American history. She also knew at that moment that the travel industry changed in, in a microsecond, right? right. Uh, all of a sudden, there was going to be, are people willing to fly? What are the new regulations going to be? People are going to be extra cautious. Maybe they're going to cancel all their trips. The deal that she had on the table got canceled, not just because the people didn't want to buy her company, but it was another travel company that was dealing with their own issues around everything that was happening with consumers' interest in travel you know, right around the, the epicenter of 9-11. So that was a lesson where she felt she had a deal on the table. And then this horrific thing happened, which had fallout for her business. But long story short, she kept at it. And Travelocity came knocking just a few years later and said, you know, we really do love what you've built. And by that point, obviously, things had sort of stabilized. And 
she was able to sell the company to Travelocity. And one of the things that I think is so impressive about Michelle is, you know, most of the time when a CEO sells their smaller company to a larger company, they agree to stay on for a year or two or three, maybe at the most, to help their smaller company get integrated into the bigger company and make sure that the synergies that everybody thought would happen actually happen. Sure. Michelle ended up not just staying at Travelocity, but becoming the CEO of Travelocity and was there for taking it public. And then years later, they made a, a decision for the right financial reasons to actually take the company private. And she was there for that as well. So, you know, not only did she start this great startup, Site 59, that was acquired by Travelocity, but she traversed that acquisition to becoming the CEO of the company that bought her company, which I just found really impressive. She also did a stint at Citibank prior to joining IBM, trying to help them for a few years figure out the future of banking, right? With everybody with Venmo and PayPal and all this stuff. Citibank and some of these other banks are really, you know, really need to get into the future, get into the current generation. And she spent a couple of years there helping them out. So she's had a very, very successful career. Yeah, not too many people sell a company, then take the acquiring company public and then private again. I think that's uh, that might be one for the record books. So, Richard, is there one story that or one interview that is maybe your favorite or that you'd really like our listeners to know about? I guess there's one, and I'm picking this one because it's not a tech story. So sure. there's a woman they name I know named Dampisa Moyo, and okay. she's considered almost the expert in the U.S. on Africa relations and specifically related to financial deals and partnerships that can be put together between the U.S. and Africa. And she was talking about how, for her in deals, culture plays a massive, massive role. And she's telling me a story where she was heading off to Africa. I forget at the time exactly what country it was. And the minister of the country called her. And this was just after the first Apple Watch launched. And the minister of the country called her and said, hey, you know, the Apple Watch isn't available here yet. So if you could pick one up for, you know, the president of country X, forgive me for not remembering, he would really appreciate it. And and she said it was interesting because here in the U.S., if you're at a big company and, you, you know, you take an ethics course and something like that was asked of you, you would do it, but you would bring a bill and you would say, you know, the Apple Watch was $2.99 and you need to pay me for it because I'm in the middle of doing a deal with you. And my ethics class in the U.S. told me that you should not do things like this. She said there it would have been insulting and potentially jeopardize the deal for her to go and say, here's her Apple watch and here's the $209 bill for the Apple watch. Of course she wouldn't do that for things that are thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. But for something that's even a three, $400 item, you know, she said their perspective there is a little bit different than our perspective here. And things like that are much more common. And if you don't know it, you could end up insulting them and potentially jeopardizing a deal. And I just found it fascinating because it wasn't something I had ever thought about. But, you know, just the whole idea of having the minister of a country call you and ask you as a favor to bring you some technology into the country, I just found kind of fascinating. That's, yeah, that's really cool. I think it just brings up 
a whole bunch of reminders about you know, nuances and culture that are really important to remember for anybody that's doing deals. Richard, this is awesome. And I highly recommend the book for anybody that's looking to get better at negotiations or deals. It's available on Amazon and it's an excellent read. Richard, what's exciting for you these days? I know you're up to a number of things. You're investing. You have your own technology company. Where do you spend your time primarily? Doing lots of things. So, you know, I'm an angel in, angel investor. I've been doing it for a long time. So probably 50 to 60 companies I've angel invested in. I'm a venture partner for Excel Partners in Palo Alto. And I'm also one of the co-founders and a venture partner at Amplify LA, which is one of the best, I think, accelerators here in LA. And then I'm the executive chairman of a company called HelloTech which is kind of like Geek Squad, but using the Uber business model. So, and then of course the book. So I, I keep more than busy enough. I'm a little bit older. My kids are all gone. So I don't have to take people to soccer practice or do homework <laughs> anymore. So it gives me time to do those things. But I, I just have always liked doing many things at the same time. It keeps me, keeps me stimulated. Definitely agree. And if there was one thing or one piece of advice that you might leave our listeners with, who hear about that and who hear about all the successes you've had, all the things that you're doing, and maybe they're just getting started, maybe they're early on in their journey. Is there any advice you wish you could tell your younger self or maybe offer to a younger entrepreneur out there? Follow your passion and the money will come. Don't be so focused on what is, it, what is the thing that's going to make me the most money the fastest, which I think is a problem with the not to sound old and lecturing, but I think there's a bit of a problem with the millennial generation. I believe that if you do something that you really have an interest in, that you really enjoy, that you really want to spend time on, especially if you're in something like the tech industry or real estate or any of these that are always, always growing, they're never going away, you will find a way to make money and you'll be happier because you'll be working on something that you truly, truly enjoy as opposed to maybe having taken a job at a startup that just seems like it was going to go public in a year and you didn't really have an interest in their core product or technology. So I would just say find the things you love to do and things that you would do even if you weren't getting paid and go do those and you'll end up doing just fine. Richard, thank you so much for joining us and everyone out there. We'll see you next time on The Mission Daily. Hey, this is Ian from The Mission. I talk to Fortune 500 CIOs and IT visionaries about how much effort and energy they put into securing their devices. But they have teams of hundreds of IT professionals, an advantage that the average business doesn't have. Until now. Jamf now makes it easy to set up, manage, and protect your company's Apple devices. As your business grows, so does your digital inventory, making it harder to manage everyone's Apple devices. This is especially true if you have remote employees, like we do at The Mission. With Jamf now, you can check your digital inventory, distribute Wi-Fi and email settings, deploy apps, protect company data, or even lock and wipe a device as needed, from anywhere. And all of this with no IT experience needed. The Mission Daily listeners can start securing their businesses today by setting up their first three devices for free forever. Add more starting at just $2 a month per device. Create your free account today at jamf.com slash mission daily. That's J-A-M-F dot com slash mission daily. We love Jamf and you. 
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Will too.